Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I was reading 2 Thessalonians today, and I have to say this verse jumped off the page, and it's uh, chapter 3, verse 16. It says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. That's my prayer for you today. I hope that you're having a good day, and thank you for spending time with me today. I'm looking forward to the show today. Rob Louie is going to be joining me in just a minute. Dr. Alex McFarland is going to follow, and then Hour 2 is Jeff Verdorn continuing our series on Who is This Jesus? Rob Louie is, of course, the executive uh, editor at The Daily Signal. Rob, welcome back to the show. Thanks. It's good to be with you, Bill. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. So with uh, 87,000 new IRS agents... Uh, I, I have to say that feels a little troubling with all the police issues we have and all the other things going on in this uh, world today. Um, you, you know, a guy like me who makes less than $10 million a year probably doesn't fear an audit, but a guy like you probably fears an audit. Well, I, I mean, they, based on what they say, Bill, I mean, I, I guess we shouldn't fear it too much, too, too much but uh, I, I think that we all know, based on past uh, experiences with the IRS, that uh, this situation is uh, is certainly troubling. And any time that the government starts to grow and expand its powers, uh, we, we need to be wary about the direction they may, uh, may see things. And so, yes, I, 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 should, I think Americans should be concerned. And uh, the, despite the fact they say no one who's making a $100,000 a year will be audited. Uh, we should take it with a grain of salt because we all saw what happened uh, back in 2010 when they targeted groups that were affiliated with the Tea Party and, and other organizations. Uh, it's uh, it's certainly problematic. And, and uh, you know, for an, an agency like the IRS, which already has its, its tentacles in so many aspects of our lives, uh, you know, to, to think about them adding 87,000 uh, new agents is just, uh, is just remarkable. You know, and then they had a requirement, which they dropped after two days, which said you will be um, asked to carry a firearm and possibly use deadly force. Now, obviously, there are IRS agents that are doing uh, major criminal investigations with uh, money laundering and drug busts and all that stuff. And they're they're trained to use guns. But is the average IRS agent equipped to use a firearm? Uh, probably Certainly, certainly not an expectation that I would have of uh, of somebody who's in a job like that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah. It, it, it's again another thing that comes as a surprise. I, I I think that there are, are a number of alarming things that have happened over the course of the, the past couple of weeks that you know really um, you know open our eyes to to, to this expanding uh, role of the federal government in intrusion into our lives and, and, and taking certain actions that, uh, that we should be, uh, questioning. And, and certainly this, this IRS piece is, is a big part of it, Bill. Yeah. Um, it it is. And I, I look at the problem we have with policing and the morale that's down and the need we have to protect our cities. And then I was thinking too, where are they going to find 87,000 people to hire. I mean, we can't keep coffee shops open, you know, past two o'clock in the afternoon. 
Well, well, that is that's a that's a great question. It's not just the IRS. I mean, it, there there are other government agencies that are looking to expand as well. I mean, I, I think it's the Department of Justice that's looking at you know thousands or tens of thousands of of, of more uh, uh, employees. Uh, because they can't keep up with their January 6th investigation and they need more people working on it. You know, I, I think you could also question whether or not they, you know, they, again, people who may have walked through the Capitol and didn't exhibit any, you know, violent activity, uh, you know, that's a different conversation probably for a different day. But you're right. Uh, here we have situations where people are waiting sometimes 30, 45 minutes, an hour. I mean, you know, we, we occasionally go out to eat when we're traveling, like, uh, you know, on a, on a trip to see my parents in New York or wherever, and we stop at a restaurant and, and, you know, you go to a Cracker Barrel and they say, you look and you see the empty tables and you're like, why can't I sit there? And they say, well, we don't have enough wait staff to mm-hmm. actually serve you. So are people just banging on the doors of the IRS, uh, sending their applications in because they can't wait to work? But you have to, you have to think if we can't fill other uh, important jobs, it's probably going to be difficult for the IRS to do the same. Mm-hmm. Rob, let's uh, talk about Afghanistan. It's already been one year. It has, yeah. And, you know, watching the images all over again on TV, is, it's quite disturbing. I may, uh, you know, recall those those moments when when so many people were trying to, to flee the country and, and clinging to, uh, you know, U.S. aircraft in a desperate attempt uh, to, to make a, a getaway because I think they knew what, what was coming in the aftermath of the United States leaving for a number of, of bad decisions. This is really when you started to see President Biden's approval rating uh, dramatically take a hit. I think people uh, saw the, the lack of leadership, the lack of planning, uh, the decisions, uh, for instance, uh, you know, abandoning uh, Bagram Air Force Base at a time when that should have been the, the way out of Afghanistan, not the, the Kabul airport, you know, when, which, you know, obviously led to a tragic situation in which 13 American service members died, uh, it, it, you know, from, from a bomber. Um, you know, it was uh, a, a terrible situation. And so to relive it a year later is, is not any prayers go out to all those families who are still deeply affected uh, by, by those who were lost. Also think, Bill, about the Afghan people who who have been left behind and the terrible situation that they're now living under uh, under the Taliban uh, regime, uh, particularly for for women uh, who lost a number of the rights that that they had had been able to reclaim and gain uh, under uh, you know the, the previous government. So. It's uh, it's it's not a situation. I, I, I unfortunately I like to be an optimist, but this is one hope and, and optimism simply because I, I think we all know how the Taliban operates. We've seen it up close and personal. We've seen what they've done in Pakistan and Afghanistan, and uh, it's going to be a tough situation for the people living there, and not made any easier by the U.S. decision to uh, to abruptly pull out as it did. Mm-hmm. Rob, you did a great job at the Daily Signal, DailySignal.com. You can check it out. You wrote an article about uh, your craft, your uh, fellow colleagues, how America feels about the news media. And they were, you said they were once champions of the working class, but journalists now represent America's elite. I would love for you to say more about that. Yeah, I I had a fascinating interview uh, with a woman named Batia Ungar Sargon, who is a deputy opinion editor at Newsweek and author of a book called Bad News. And she went back and did a fascinating history, things that I didn't even learn when I was in school, Bill, 
uh, it felt like uh, like I, I was getting a history lesson about how at a time when many newspapers were, were coming of age in the early 1900s really represented the interests of the working class because they didn't have another outlet to get uh, to get their news. And so there were, were or like the penny press that it really catered uh, to their interests and uh, and their needs and advocated on their path. And even back then, the New York Times uh, really tried to set itself apart catering to the elite uh, as it still does today. Uh, but what what Batia found in her in her studies is that so often what you had was a transformation that took place probably around the time of the 1970s. Really, I think inspired in part by the Watergate investigation and a desire for more people to to pursue uh, journalism degrees. And so you went from a situation where journalists were oftentimes people who probably did go to college, uh, graduated high school, and then immediately started their profession. Uh, to people who now, you know, have a, a bad, not only a bachelor's degree, uh, but also a master's degree, or maybe even a more, you know more advanced degree, um, and uh, and they're also concentrated in in big hubs. Uh, so she says that one in five journalists live in Los Angeles, New York, or Washington. So obviously, their perspectives on what issues are important to um, to Americans are colored by uh, their own communities, and then they tend to collect in packs. And therefore, uh, they don't tell stories that really represent the interests of, of anybody but their own, because they themselves are spending time at the same cocktail parties and uh, and other affairs that uh, you know that probably don't have much in common with with the Americans who are, are living in, uh, in in places like Minneapolis and Des Moines mm-hmm. and uh, and you know Middle America. And so, Bill, I think um, you know, I, I think it's troubling. I, 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 I don't have a great solution for it. I, I asked Batia about, uh, you know, what we can do about it. She said that one of the great things that, that she thinks is people are starting to boycott these uh, legacy media outlets where they no longer care about telling the truth, frankly, but pushing an agenda. And so look for alternative sources of news. I mean, certainly that's what we're trying to do at the Daily including places uh, that they can get news on podcasts or Substack e- newsletters. I mean, you name it. Uh, the internet has just created a uh, many You have to be, um, you know, skeptical about some of the things that you see and, and very, you know, deliberate in terms of what you, what you pursue. But, uh, but really, um, you know, it's, uh, it's a shame that, uh, that our country is headed down this path. And I, and I hope that some of the institutions uh, start to recognize that they're not doing themselves any service by ignoring a, Mm-hmm. Rob Blue is my guest. He's the executive editor at The Daily Signal. We're going to take a break. We'll come back. Lots more with Rob. If you have a question for Rob, send it over. You can send a text to 877-933-2484. I'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter... Thank you so much becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Back with Rob Bluey, who's the executive editor over at the Daily Signal. Always glad to have Rob on the show. Uh, Rob, question came in: uh, Could could you explain the term "new world order"? 
Uh, sure. <laughs> I think uh, New World Order or Liberal World Order, because that's the term that uh, Brian Deese, the, uh, the White House economic advisor, used recently to describe why uh, the the price of gas was um, was so high and, and suggested that uh, that it was part of this uh, this new or I guess liberal world order in which uh, the the administration was was pursuing kind of a, a change in approach. So I I, I I don't know specifically if if the the listener is is referring to that, um, but uh, but you know it's uh, it's it's I guess this idea, Bill, that uh, you know there there are certain people who are dissatisfied with kind of the the traditional uh, ideas that uh, our, our founders came up with, and they um, they want to pursue and take us in a in a different direction, ideologically or philosophically. All right, let's move on to this in- incredibly creative title of this new bill called the Inflation Reduction Act. I love this. Would you what? Would you say more about the true the truthfulness of that title? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, you've, you have to give the Democrats credit uh, for always coming up with creative titles, uh, like the, the, the Patient Protection Act, Obamacare, right? The Inflation Reduction Act, so uh, the Affordable Care Act. You know, so they, uh, it, it, it's great marketing on their behalf. I mean, you really have to, to tip your hand. Unfortunately, it's not true. Uh, and and you, we know it's not true because the last thing that you want to do at a time when we have eight and nine percent inflation is spend more money, and that's exactly what this bill does. Uh, it, it's you know a costly bill, uh, seven hundred over seven hundred billion dollars, uh, and plus it raises taxes. Again, not something that you'd want to do during a recession, which we are officially in. And so they came up with this clever name, and they get it repeated in the media, and they say it over and over again. Uh, but I think it's important to recognize what it really is. It's a tax and spending bill. Um, and, and like so many other the other things that the Congress has passed uh, during the last few years under COVID, uh, it spends a lot more money than we have. And that's unfortunate because I, I, I think that we are in a situation in this country where we keep running up the debt bill, and we're now seeing the consequences of that. And that means higher prices uh, at the gas station and the grocery store. It means the fact that uh, we're, we're, we're putting in, in jeopardy programs like Social Security and, and Medicare, which are running out of money at a rapid pace. And in the next decade, we'll be you know facing significant challenges. And, and I, I think that there's a lack of will on the part of members of Congress uh, to do anything about that. Uh, they can't continue uh, to just pass these bills and expect more and more spending without there being some sort of ramification in the future. Okay, Rob, I was alarmed when I read some uh, – I read in uh, at thedailysignal.com of the amount of farmland that China has purchased. And I just want to say it's in excess of 352,000 acres of U.S. farmland that China now owns. How is this happening? It it is. Bill, I'm just as alarmed as you. I mean, frankly, to even think this is happening in our country is just kind of a head-scratcher and unbelievable, right? I mean, what are we thinking to allow our greatest adversary to purchase farmland, and not just any farmland. Usually that strategic purchases near military installations, and, and we, we've even seen situations where they, uh, they purchase the land and they build things like wind turbines, which you know, disrupt the ability for, for our military to conduct operations. Uh, why are they doing it near military installations? Are they trying to 
get surveillance and, and you know, steal secrets. You know, there are a lot of unknowns here. But, I mean, just by the, the, the very nature that the Chinese are, are purchasing farmland, I mean, that in and of itself is, is concerning. I, 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 you know, hope that they wouldn't have malicious intent here. But, uh, but one has to wonder, uh, given, you know, what, what, what President Xi's uh, intentions have been, uh, given the adversarial role that he's taken against the United States, given what we see taking place right now uh, with Taiwan and in uh, and, and the Uyghur uh, concentration camps. I mean, there are a number of things that the Chinese are doing. We still don't have answers on COVID and the origins. So, you know, there are a whole number of reasons to be worried about this. And I think that it requires action on the part of this administration and this Congress uh, to say we are going to put an end to this. Uh, you've started to see some governors and some state legislatures uh, take action uh, where they can. And uh, and I hope to see we see more of that, because I, I think that uh, it's important for us to take a strong stand on this issue. Mm-hmm. What's the latest update on the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago? Well, uh, there's a debate right now taking place uh, about whether or not we're going to get more information, uh, the whether they'll unseal the affidavit. You know, the, the, the interesting thing about this bill is that you, you had in the immediate aftermath a number of news organizations that aren't particularly kind to President Trump saying, release everything. And Trump said, okay, I'll release it. He releases it to Breitbart News. <laughs> and then the media and others start to say, well, what, you know, what is Breitbart thinking? How could they put this unredacted document out there? You know, so, I mean, just the double standard and the hypocrisy that you see. But, uh, I, I mean, here's, here's my thought on it, Bill. Uh, number one, uh, I think that the president has made clear – President Trump, that is, has made clear on numerous occasions that if they wanted these documents, they could have had them. They didn't make, need to make a spectacle out of it. And, and, and I think that that's why you've even seen President Trump in recent days saying that we need to take down the temperature because I think he realizes that this is not good uh, for Americans to, to, to get worked up about this. I also think that – you know, there are a number of troubling things that the Biden administration has done using law enforcement. Uh, it wasn't just Trump. The day after tr- the Mar-a-Lago raid, they seized the phone of Congressman Scott Perry, who is the chairman of the House Freedom Caucus. Uh, well, he was with his family. Again, Scott Perry said if they had just contacted him and asked him to turn it over, you know, you, why did you have to make a scene out of it? And then there's a whole no- uh, you know, a number of other things that the Justice Department is pursuing, whether it's related to January 6th or other, whether it's related to other investigations that seems to be targeting their, their political enemies. And I've seen people say if Richard Nixon had, <laughs> had actually gone through and done some of the things that he was threatening to do, uh, we would be in an uproar. Or if, another, if a foreign government had you know, one political leader targeting his, his past predecessor or future uh, rival, you know, we, we would be in an uproar. And, uh, and so I think it's time the American people wake up and, and say we need to put an end to the politicization of law enforcement. Uh, enough is enough. And the DOJ should, uh, should, should really step back and, and provide the information uh, and, and not, start, not hide behind these excuses that they can't release the affidavit. Mm-hmm. Rob, over at thedailysignal.com, uh, there's an uh, interesting article by Sarah uh, Parshall Perry on uh, lo- losing a child to miscarriage and how the, um, the abortion uh, people who are, are abortion advocates are trying to muddy the waters, trying to muddy the definition of an abortion. They, they are. They are. And they're trying to, to equate uh, the well, they're trying to use the Supreme Court's decision in the Dobbs case, uh, as you know, Bill, uh, for, a, for a number of different political 
purposes. I mean, number one, to rally people to come out and support their candidates for election. I mean, I think that's the underlying goal here. But but in doing so, they're making arguments like this one that uh, that equate a, a miscarriage with an abortion. Well, obviously, there's a huge difference there. A, a miscarriage is when somebody loses a child, uh, you know, because of you know a variety of reasons, uh, you know, and it wasn't an intentional act on the part to kill the baby. Um, oftentimes, it's a tragic situation in which the mother has no control. It could be a genetic reason or, or, you know, any number of reasons. And so for them to try to equate this, I think, is just really uh, egregious on their part. But I, I, I don't put it past them to do this and other things as they attempt to spread misinformation about the Dobbs decision. Uh, we all know what the Dobbs decision did. It returned the decision of abortion back to, to states and to lawmakers and to the American people, ultimately, where they, their elected representatives can now make a decision uh, in their own states. And, and while I do think that we should have a, a, a federal law, I, I, I think protecting life is, is important and we should not be living in two Americas where some states allow it and some states don't. You know, there's going to have to be work that, that needs to happen and take place over the course of, you know, the next years and the next Congresses uh, to get us there. We're not there yet. Uh, as we saw with the vote in Kansas, we have a long way to go. We have to overcome these pro-abortion forces, and it's going to take a lot of work, resources, and grassroots effort uh, to get us there. Rob, had a listener wanting to know if uh, lawmakers realize how out of touch they are with the average American when they pass some of these tax and spend bills, or do you think they they, they don't care? That was the question. I, I think that, honestly, they don't care. Uh, it's it's a similar situation to to when, when President Obama was in his first term and I think realized that he was probably going to lose control of Congress in 2010, and they rammed through as many pieces of legislation that, legislation that weren't necessarily popular, but they advanced their agenda. Uh, this is something that they have been successful at doing, frankly, Bill, and uh, and it's something that Republicans tend to to not be as successful doing when they when they have the levers of power, as we saw during President Trump's first two years in office. I mean, he got tax cuts done, but there were a number of other things that simply stalled. And so, uh, so Biden has, has has been able to achieve, you know, a number of things: gun control, the Chips Act, the this new tax and spend bill. And yes, well, they might be unpopular with voters. They are deeply popular with their their base. And so, you know, they will now go out and tout this and, and maybe make some inroads in some areas. But I think the American people are going to feel the effects of it. And that's why you continue to see inflation and spending be top issues, the economy being a top issue for so many Americans. And that's what's going to motivate them to vote this November. Mm-hmm. Rob, we just have uh, about 30 seconds left. What other news stories on the top of your desk? Yeah, sure. Well, uh, Bill, I mean, I think one of the big things that, uh, that you know we're, we're paying attention to, which doesn't get nearly the uh, the attention, is what's going on in, in so many cities with crime and uh, and these prosecutors who are are not doing a good job of of doing it. Uh, I, I mentioned the economy as one of the top issues. Crime continues to dominate as as one of the other ones, uh, particularly in our big cities. And so we continue to bring a focus on that at the Daily Signal, and we're going to make sure that. Uh, the American people get the, get the facts and information that they need to know. Awesome. Thank you so much, Rob. I always like uh, our time together on Tuesdays and look forward to next week. Have a great uh, great rest of the week. Thanks, Bill. You bet. Rob Bluey's been my guest. He's the executive editor at The Daily Signal. You can check out dailysignal.com. We'll take a break and we come back. Dr. Alex McFarland will be joining me. We're going to continue our look at some the- great theologians from the past. Be right back.
Welcome to the show. If you just joined me, I'm going to look forward to this time with my friend, Dr. Alex McFarlane. We're going to continue our study of some theologians from the past. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, it's a good rule after reading a new book, never to allow your, never allow yourself another new one until you have read an old one in between. And it's always good to learn from the body of great Christian thinkers of our past. And they, uh, some of their, their teachings has weathered a lot of years. And I'm always looking forward to processing some of these thoughts with uh, Alex. He's a author and speaker and a uh, regular guest on the show. Alex, welcome. Thank you for having me on. Uh, you yeah. have me on very regularly, and I, I don't feel worthy of it, but I am grateful. Yeah, well, I want to talk today uh, about a, a past theologian. I know you know this man well, William Barclay. Oh, my goodness, yes. My my mother introduced me to his books a long time ago. I was a little kid. And um, now, do you speak of those commentaries? You know, there was like a, a green spine and a brown spine and a pink. Mm-hmm. You remember those? Yes, I do. Like every church library in the 1970s, probably through the early 90s, probably had William Barclay's commentary in there. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about some of his wisdom. Uh, one of the things I, I was reading uh, this week was, prayer is not flight, prayer is power. Prayer does not deliver a man from some terrible situation. Prayer enables a man to face and to master the situation. Mm. Wow, that that is powerful. Um, do you know, it's funny you had mentioned Barclay, because when you think about the dead theologians, sometimes I think about guys that have been dead for you know centuries rather than decades. I mean, Barclay probably passed away either in the early 80s or late 70s. Late 70s, 78. Uh, really? Okay. Yeah. Um, he, he really was important. In fact, I was reading William Barclay really before I really knew the Lord, Bill. Uh, just because my mom and dad, my dad was an elder in the Presbyterian Church, and my mother taught Sunday school. And so Barclay's commentaries were around, mm-hmm. and they were very readable, and I was probably 15, 16 years old. And they, they, were, they were meaty, and they were deep, and they were saturated with the Word of God, but they were also kind of accessible and readable. And uh, I am glad you bring his name up, because I, I think he, he had this window of time when he was ubiquitous. He was in all the bookstores. And I think he got a lot of people uh, more deeply into the Word of God than they had been before. I would agree. Uh, William Barclay says, It may be one of our great faults in prayer is that we talk too much and listen too little. When prayer is at its highest, we wait in silence for God's voice to us. We linger in His presence for His peace and His power to flow over us and around us. We lean back in his everlasting arms and feel the serenity of perfect security in him. Mm, wow. Perfect that, that's security a, you, in him. Oh, that's a beautiful thought, isn't it? It really is. It, it really is. And, um, you know, he was uh, he was a guy in his day, in, in all fairness, and listen, uh, none of us have perfect theology. I mean, you know, we throw out names like C.S. Lewis and Martin Luther, but if, if you read the writings of any human being, 
um, there's, as we say down south, you know, you've got to eat the chicken and spit out the bones. I mean, <laughs> there there are things that we celebrate about so many of the great church leaders, and then there are things that we might disagree with. I mean, there's, you know, Bill, there's things I've said and done that later I disagree with. And so um, when we speak uh, favorably about all of these great leaders, um, that's, and I, I bet I would speak for you and myself we're not saying that we necessarily condone or endorse everything they ever said or did. Because in his day, there were some that felt like Barclay was a little bit liberal. Mm-hmm. All right, nowadays, they would call him an arch-conservative. And that's kind mm-hmm. of really speaks to the, the scriptural drift that we've had over the recent years. But um, in his own day, there were some that felt like, they liked part of it, but felt like he was kind of loose on some other things. Uh, all in all, you know, I like Barkley. Um, there, there are a couple of things that I might disagree with him about, but believe it or not, gasp. There's some things I disagree with C.S. Lewis about. Mm-hmm. You, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, Barkley is somebody that needs to be remembered, and I'm glad you've brought him up. And here's. Uh to prove the point that you just made, Alex, uh, another William Barclay quote is this, more people have been brought into the church by the kindness of real Christian love than by all the theological arguments in the world. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I, I really do believe that's true. And Bill, this is kind of a cliche and it's kind of become a meme or something everywhere. They don't uh, care how much you know until they know how much you care. So true. That, that really is true. And as as much as I love theology, worldview, and apologetics, and I, I love information and data, John 13, Jesus said, By this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. It's kindness, friendship, relationship, and love that draws people like a magnet to church and ultimately to Jesus, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Dr. Alex McFarland is my guest. You can learn more about him at uh, alexmcfarland.com, and I encourage you to do so. All of his writings and books are all there, all available. Um, Alex, I love this quote by William Barclay. He said, true prayer is asking God what he wants. Wow. Read, read that again, Bill, if you would. True prayer is asking God what he wants. My goodness, that's convicting, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know how often we do that. Yeah, you know, the the word uh, in olden times, they would talk about our petitions and prayers. And, you know, we petition God like in Luke 18, uh, the widow that was, you know, repeatedly asking the judge to do this for me. And we often say, you know, dear Lord, here's this, 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 and this, please do this, please do this, please do this. But Barclay is right. Uh, True prayer, Lord, what would you have me to do? Remember like Samuel said, speak, Lord, thy servant heareth. And, hey, I'm preaching at Alex here. It would really change us if we said less about what we want God to do and inquire more what does God want us to do. Mm, So true. So convicting. Um Hey Bill, I got to ask you something, brother. Do yeah. I hear a touch of a late summer cold in your? Oh, uh, you you do hear that. I'm sorry. No problem. No, I'll, I'll be praying for you. I hope you feel better. 
Thank you. It is a little annoying, but uh, it is there, so I appreciate it. Well, no, you, you sound great, but um, I, I know what it is to do radio with a sore throat. So okay. uh, <laughs> my, my sympathy is yours, brother. Thank you so much. Uh, Alex, another great quote, and this is just exactly what you just did to me right now. And William Barclay said, We have a duty to encourage one another. Many a time, a word of praise or thanks or appreciation or cheer has kept a man on his feet. Blessed is the man who speaks such a word. Wow, that's really good. A duty to encourage one another. Just like uh, Barnabas, the encourager. We, uh, I, I think we do have um, this duty and really privilege to encourage each other. I mean, it's it's not a have to, it's a get to. And know, yeah. Uh, Again, you know, Bill, people are always asking, what can we do to get more people in church? If it's a place of encouragement, if people come, they're uplifted, they get their batteries charged, and they get strength for facing another week, uh, people will come. Um, And heaven forbid that within the family of God, people get discouraged. Let it be within the family of God that people get encouraged. Mm Mm-hmm. So good. Dr. Alex McFarlane is my guest. We are chatting about theologians from the past, which we've had so much fun doing. Alex is, uh, has so much wisdom on uh, past theologians and is a great friend to process some of these true and and rich uh, Christian thinkers with me. So, um, Barclay, he was a Scot, wasn't he? He was Scot. He was a Scot, yeah. Yeah, um, and, and I, I don't know, was he a Presbyterian, as so many Scottish leaders have been? I believe he was. Wow. Um, but, uh, yeah, the books, I'm assuming they're still in print and folks, by the way, let me put in a plug for your local church library. Bill, do you remember, um, and I I hope this is still the case with many churches, but there was a time when, you know, most churches had a really robust library and the Barclay commentaries, you, you'll recognize them because they're the spines are the covers and the spine are like gray, brown, green, pink, blue, and um, anyway, go to your local church library and look for Barclay's books. But read all kinds of books. Yeah, what's the what's the latest book you've read, Alex? The latest book I've read. Well, mm-hmm. um, it wasn't. I, I've got two books going on. I'm going to tell you, it wasn't very spiritual. But the latest book I finished reading a few days ago was a book, that murder mystery, um, Where the Crawdads Sing, by (laughs) Delia Owens. It was a big Uh movie. But the book I'm reading right now, um, now I've got to sound spiritual, but um, there's an old book that I've owned for 30 years called What Every Christian Should Know by Joe Lewis and Gordon Palmer, published by Christianity Today in 1989. Folks, let me encourage you. Uh, Barclay, uh, everybody from Luther to Aquinas to Augustine, this is a book about knowledge that really ought not be forgotten, What Every Christian Should Know by Joe Lewis and Gordon Palmer. So good. All right, Alex, I'm going to take a little break. We'll come back. Uh, If you um, have just joined us, Dr. Alex McFarland is my guest, and we're talking about theologians from the past who have Uh, made an impact with their deep thinking and we like to look and go over their thinking and process it and say what can we learn and how can we apply 
some of these great thoughts to us, our lives today. We'll take a short break and we'll be right back. We want to connect with you on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. We're creating encouraging posts every day to help you focus on the important things as you spend time on social media. From graphics that feature Bible verses and quotes from our hosts and show guests, to articles about topics you are interested in, to videos from our hosts. Search Faith Radio on social media sites to connect with us today. Welcome back to the show. Dr. Alex McFarland is my guest. You can learn more about him at alexmcfarland.com, and I hope you do. He's written over 20 books, and he's an exceptionally smart thinker, and he is a lover of God's Word, and I love having him on the show. He always helps me process things and does it well. We're talking about some theologians from the past and some of their um, their great thinking that they have had, and how can we uh, learn and apply some of what they have said in our present uh in our lives today. So Alex, uh, another line that I love that Barclay said was real repentance means coming not only to be sorry for the consequences of sin, but to hate sin itself. Wow. Wow. Uh, yeah, that's, that's good because you know, as I recall, and, and I have to confess, it's been some years since I was, you know, reading his commentaries regularly, but Barclay talked much about the presence of Jesus in our life. I mean, that was kind of one of his overarching themes was for the believer. There's not only the fact that you put your faith in Christ to be born again. Sure, that's how you become a Christian. You repent, you believe, you, you're born again. But the presence of Christ throughout the entirety of our life and throughout this journey. And I remember he would talk about like not being frantic and not being rushed and he said it was one of the one of the characteristics of the modern age that everybody wants things in a hurry but Barclay talked about this calm uh, presence of Christ and there's emotional stability and you know just for lack of a better word just a, a confident calm assurance and um if, if Jesus and the presence of, of Christ in our life is important, then we're going to be sensitive to sin. And uh, Bill, read that quote again, if you would, because I, I think that when we lose the joy of the presence of Jesus, that's when we're vulnerable to not be concerned about sin. So read yeah. that quote, if you would. Yeah. Real repentance means coming not only to be sorry for the consequences of sin, but to hate sin itself. Amen. Because mm-hmm. because the presence of sin is a wedge between us and the Lord. Yeah. In our busy lives, uh, Barclay says this too, the simple fact is that the world is too busy to give the Holy Spirit a chance to enter in. Wow. Yeah. I, I would agree. That Remember that still, small voice. You know, if we're too too loud and too busy uh, we can't hear the the still small voice mm-hmm. um, 
Barclay said, when we love anyone with our whole hearts, life begins when we are with that person. It is only in their company that we are really and truly alive. Mm. What do you think Barclay would say if he came back on the scene, Bill, 2022, what would what would this eminent Bible scholar and theologian from the past, what would he have to say about the church of the 21st century, Bill? Uh, I don't, I, I think he would run screaming. Yeah, I think he would say, you people need to turn to Christ. Exactly. Uh, because, I mean, he's right. And do you, you know what I think is so neat about, you know, Bill, you and I, um, I think one of the reasons that our friendship really kind of clicks is we, we do try to, you know, drink deeply from some of these um, wells that have stood the test of time. Uh, but we got to remember to be a disciple means a daily, consistent, learning, obedient follower. And do you remember when Jesus offered, you know, to let people come and be his disciple in the, in the you know, Jewish world? I mean, that was a great honor. If, if a rabbi, and the, the word, you know, rebbe, means teacher mm-hmm. if if an esteemed teacher said look uh you may come and be my disciple that was a high honor and you think about this the son of god is offering to let us walk with him and be his disciple he's the master we're the follower but i i fear that we and again i'm preaching to alex here we forget that it's not just okay i'll pray a prayer and decades from now someday when i die i'll go to heaven but you know, in the meantime, I do whatever I want to do. No. Jesus invites us not merely to be a convert. Jesus calls us to be a disciple. And, um, Bill, um, you, you and I play guitar. I mean, I, I still love the guitar. I don't think I'm all that good at it. But um, imagine, I mean, put in the superlative of your choice. If, you know, your, if your musical hero said, hey, if you'd like, I'll tutor you on guitar. You know, for me, it it would be, you know, somebody like Brian Setzer. I would say, oh, my goodness, yes, yes, every day, if if you'll give me a lesson, I'll be a willing people Hmm. every day. But Mm -hmm. um, Jesus calls us to be his disciple, not just to pray a prayer years ago at summer camp, but every day to walk with him. And Barclay understood that, and I think maybe more so than today, the people of old, they seem to understand that being a Christian was to be a daily disciple, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. And not to correct you, Alex, but I don't play uh, guitar. I play five-string banjo. Um, That's because right. I, because I like solitude, and anybody who plays a five-string banjo usually gets it. <laughs> well, you know, I remember when you and I first started doing radio a long time ago, you graciously would play some surf music. That's right. You do play the five-string banjo. Uh, uh, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, All right. Yeah, I, I've, um, sometime when we have time, I want to tell you that I've tried to take up the violin. And oh, wow. um, my awesome. wife and, and the dog object. Uh, that's too bad. I think they're in the wrong. I got to be honest. Well, I think you should keep you should keep trying. The dog, when I practice my violin, the dog accompanies me. Oh, cool! And my wife said, uh, "Can't you play something that the dog doesn't know?" <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but uh, so five string banjo, very cool. Yeah, 
All right, here's another William Barclay quote, Alex. Jesus is the yes to every promise of God. Amen. Don't you love that? That's beautiful. That that is that is beautiful. Um Jesus is proof that God loves us and wants us to be in relationship with him. Amen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a, uh, read that again. I I got to put that on. I'll print that out and put it on my my desk. Say it again. Uh yeah, I might have already lost it. Um oh wait, here it is. Sorry. Jesus is the yes to every promise of God. Amen. I do love that. That is good. Yeah, so um, that's William Barclay. Jesus is the yes to every promise of God. I'm talking to Dr. Alex McFarland. You can learn more about Alex at alexmcfarland.com. Barclay always says... The greatest thing is a life of obedience in the routine things of everyday life. No amount of fine feeling can take the place of faithful doing. Wow. That's true. That's Mm -hmm. true. Um, You you know, I think we kind of believe that if God gave us some grandiose assignment, we would do it, you know. But um, God asks us to trust him in, in what we would call mundane you know yes um that that's the test isn't it if we could do the the small unknown incognito things with as much zeal as we would do the thing that we think is is the big thing because you know first corinthians fifteen fifty eight, um our labor in the lord is not in vain you know and uh so Honestly, I know this probably sounds like spiritual talk, but it's actually truth, reality. Um, emptying the wastebaskets is every bit as important as being up in that pulpit preaching a sermon, if if that's what assignment God's given you to do. Bill, do you remember that they were kind of pioneers in the contemporary Christian uh, music world, Mylon Lefevre and Broken Heart? Do you remember that? Oh, sure. Yeah. They were members of a church somewhere back east. I'm thinking it was like Georgia, um, like Mount Perrin Church of God, I think it was. And Mylon, um, I remember he was being interviewed, and I've heard this story, but in, this was there was a time, folks, like the late 80s, early 90s, Mylon and Broken Heart. I mean, they were absolutely at the top of the contemporary Christian music world. But they would go back, and because they were on the road so much, they weren't, you know, in church every Sunday like many of us are, you know, in itinerant ministry. But Mylon and his band would go in like on Monday or Tuesdays and clean the bathrooms. <laughs> wow. And they were like rock stars, right? Wow. But Mylon said, it's good, it's a way we can serve, and, and it sort of helps us keep things in perspective. Mm-hmm. And do you know what? I mean, that's what we've got to do is remember, look, anything we do for Jesus is significant. It's worthy of our best, and we we do it as unto the Lord. And so um, I think anybody would, you know, they say a sermon, a sermon is something that a preacher would drive 500 miles to deliver, but wouldn't cross the street to hear. Uh, Well, I don't know about that, but we've got to be humble enough to do, do the mundane things with every bit of the zeal that we would do what we think might be some grand thing because we're doing it all for Christ. Mm-hmm. I love that. 
All right, one more, and then we're out of time. Uh, Barclay said, For the Christian, heaven is where Jesus is. We do not need to speculate on what heaven will be like. It is enough to know that we will be forever with him. That's good. I mean, you know, l- let me just say, um, as much as I love and appreciate Barclay, you know, like like I said earlier, Bill, um, eat the chicken, spit out the bones. I, I think when it comes to the biblical descriptions of heaven or hell, you know, I think we can take the Bible for what it says, you know, and um, when it talks about, you know, it's like a sea of glass in front of the throne of God and um, uh, rivers of waters of life and the the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. I mean, I, I believe that. I really do. Um, it was very fashionable in mid-20th century theology to theologians, and Barclay was one of them, would say, well, this or that, you know, we don't take it literally. Well, I understand there's some symbolic language, but whether it be, you know, warnings about hell or promises about heaven, um, I do think we can take it literally and confidently. And the only thing in no way, Bill, in no way am I diminishing my appreciation for Barclay and what he wrote. Um, he, He did throw in a lot of these caveats about what not to take literally. And I kind of I kind of overlook those because I do think that we should take the, the Word of God literally. Yeah. As always, thank you so much, Alex, for being with me. I appreciate hey man, thank your time. you. And I look hope, forward to the hope next your throat gets better. Thanks so much. And All right. May we visit again in two weeks? I look forward to it. God bless you, my friend. God bless you. We'll take a break. When we come back, Jeff Verdorn is in studio. We're going to talk about who is this Jesus. That's all next. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.